Welcome to the latest ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and at the end of the first week of action here at the Miami Open, presented by Itau, the second ATP Masters 1000 of the year. Sit back and enjoy some of our favorite interviews and moments from the tournament so far, starting with that moment when 21-year-old Australian Tanasi Kokonakis shocked the tennis world. He's got a second serve to have a go at here with this Love 40 scoreline in his favour. Federer serves, Kokinakis with a backhand return deep to the Federer forehand, which he pulls cross court and wide. And Tanasi Kokinakis has just broken the Roger Federer serve for the first time in his young life. Well, talk about raising his game. Just loses the bounce of the ball and resets himself at the far end. Second service to the Federer backhand. He sliced return. He's right onto the baseline. Federer can take charge of this. Second ball onto the baseline again. Kokinakis had stopped, but his ball was too difficult for Federer to deal with. The backhand volley drifts wide. And to general astonishment, I think, in the crowd, Kokinakis has leveled this match up. Federer is match point down. Kokinakis, the second serve, the backhand return is into the net from Roger Federer who falls in the second round to a delighted Tanasi Kokinakis. The victory of his career and Federer has told him it was an amazing performance. Kokinakis beats Federer the defending champion, the world number one, is out. The world number 175 has beaten him. A roar of the purest joy from Kokinakis, who's come from a set down to knock out Federer. Federer waves to the Miami crowd. He's leaving already, so soon. And who saw this coming? Tanasi Kokinakis delivering the kind of result that maybe his potential has always hinted at. But now he's fit, and today he was firing. He wins 3-6, Well, Tanasi, first time you ever played the great Roger Federer, and you've won out there. How does this feel right now? Oh, man, this is, uh, this is nuts. Uh, I was scheduled to play a challenger next week uh, in St. Louis Potosi, but... I think I've got a good excuse as to why I can't go now. Um, he's under a win for me. I mean, I've trained with him a lot of times. You know, everyone looks up to him. Obviously, he's such a good role model for the sport, playing unbelievable tennis this year. And he's invited me to Dubai to train a few times. And then uh, I took what I learned from him and, and sort of kind of knew how he played a little bit um, and just played my game and, and executed. Obviously, a set down to start with, but where did you sort of start to realise that sort of the match was there for the taking? Well, I didn't really put pre any pressure on him. Um, I didn't keep any scoreboard pressure. I know he's an unbelievable front runner. In the second set, I kind of used a couple of loose errors. I started getting in the rallies a little bit more and, and dictating with my forehand. And when I feel like I'm playing on my terms, I don't think there's too many people that can go with me. So um, I just need to play my game and play my aggre aggressive tennis, and uh, I think I can do some good things. You look pretty calm in that deciding tiebreak. How did you actually feel inside? I was pretty. I was pretty excited. <laughs> I just tried to play my game, tried to play on my terms. Uh, I got up two love and I really wanted that third point to go three love and then he came up with some good tennis and I don't know man, like I just I just served well and I, I played I was I was calmer than I thought. Inside I was pretty happy and pretty excited, but I was I kept pretty calm considering how I've been in those moments before. This is ATP Tennis Radio.
Well, I'm delighted to be with one of the busiest and most sought-after men here in Miami, uh, James Blake, former world number four and now the tournament director here uh, at the Miami Open. I know these are months in the planning, James. How does it feel now to be sort of underway? And, you know, is it relief? Is it? Yeah, it's um, there's definitely a little bit of hesitation and just not sure what what to expect. Um, Some a little anxiety before I got on site. And then once I got on site, it's been absolutely a mile a minute. So it hasn't given me a time to to even sink in or think about being being nervous or getting anything wrong because you're just you're just kind of going, going, going. And it's been but it's been a lot of fun. I actually have enjoyed the feeling of, of being busy every day. Your first year as well as tournament director. Was it something you always wanted to do? I, I know you worked in the media before a little bit. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it much. Um, and then I, I got this call last summer about the possibility. Do you think it would be something you'd be interested in? And I started thinking about it, and I thought that that is something I would love to do. And I never really thought of it as a possibility, um, especially this early. I thought maybe later on in my life, because um, I feel like you want the players to respect you and be able to come to you. But now I feel like they, they have that. It's hard for me to admit, but I've been away from the tour long enough that I've, I'm, some of these guys I don't even know, and some of them have just come on the last few years, and they're, they may have grown up watching me a little bit. So uh, I am getting a little older, so I, I, get, I think I need to be realistic about that. And hopefully it's been um, – hopefully I'm still young enough to relate to the players, and that's what's important is making sure that they're, um, they're getting their needs met and they're um, getting their voice heard. And that's part of my one of my biggest roles here is to make sure that the players um, are are heard. And it's the last one here at Crandon Park, which has been uh, uh, you know it's taken up a lot of uh, column inches. Why the move? Well, I think it just it, it became time. Uh, there's a, a need to expand, and that wasn't possible here. Uh, there's going to be across the board uh, improvements uh, for the video boards, the locker rooms, the food space, uh, more courts, more parking spaces. Everything is just going to be um, really so much better next year. Not that there's anything wrong with this place, but uh, here, here at Crandon Park, but uh, the Hard Rock Stadium is going to be such a treat. And Stephen Ross has mentioned that he, he wants to make it the best tournament in the world. And um, I believe him. You know, when he says that, it, he seems to, to make things happen when he wants them to happen. And so I'm, I'm really excited to be working with him. There's a real family feel, though, to this one, isn't there? It's mm-hmm. very intimate. It kind of hugs you, the tournament. Is that one of the main challenges, turning uh, the hard rock into that, that same pull for the fans? Yeah, and I think that was important when we started uh, discussing the change. And um, we didn't want to lose some of the, the intimate nature. And uh, that's why we didn't, uh, we're not going crazy with the stadium. It's not going to seat 60,000 people or something. It's going to be right around the same number of seats that are here at Crandon Park, uh, just about 14,000. Um, so it's not going to seem as massive when you're sitting in it, even though it is a, a football stadium that is massive. It's going to seem like it's uh, a little more intimate and it's going to have a lot of club level seating. So there'll be probably uh, room for a lot better seats and people feeling like they're getting this uh, incredible experience being at the tennis and uh, hopefully plenty more crossover fans too people that maybe haven't been into tennis as much before and maybe were football fans now they come see it and and if you come out and watch these athletes it's uh it's really impressive when you see it in person what are the players saying the players i was amazed that a lot of them were pretty skeptical um initially until they got here and they saw the tour they saw the um the the virtual tour and they saw what it's going to look like and once they did that, a lot of them have told me, man, it looks like it's it's going to be great, and I'm excited for next year, and I'm excited to see what you guys can do with all that space. So um, I'm really happy that they 
I guess, reserve judgment until they saw what we had planned. So um, shows that the, the players are thoughtful, something that I knew when I was a player. And um, a lot of a lot of people don't realize that these players um, do think a lot, not just about tennis and not just um, hitting a ball over a net. They're uh, they're pretty thoughtful. Just finally, I'll ask you to reminisce. You played 12 Miamis, I think. Favorite memory here? Uh, my favorite memory was probably my first win, um, beating Fabrice Santoro, uh, a really unique player. I was down very quickly in the first set. I had never played against anyone like him, and um, and the crowd really got behind me. It was a tough, hard-fought win. So um, just having that crowd, it, it turned into like one of those night matches out on court one, I think, and because um, I was last on, and it was just uh, for me when I. When I got here, I never expected a lot out of myself on tour. And so for me to get a win here at, a, at such a big event was a thrill. And you made two quarterfinals. The, mm -hmm. the first one in 2006, lost to a, a certain Roger Federer, who's still yeah. out there now at the grand old age of whatever he is, leading yeah. the, a wonderful draw at your tournament. Yeah, and I, I just it's incredible because I remember that, that match in 2006. I had played him in the finals of Indian Wells, and I felt like I was playing so well. I, I wanted to, you know, I don't usually look that far ahead in draws, but that at that time I was playing so well, I was like, just please don't put Roger anywhere near me. Please don't put Roger in my quarter. And, of course, he was in my quarter, and um, he got me again in a close match. But um, I, I do remember that one really well, and I cannot believe that was – over 10 years ago and he's still number one in the world and I am nowhere near that and I my body aches sometimes waking up in the morning I don't know how he does it uh, it makes me feel a little bit like a slacker that he can still be this good or or just the realization that he doesn't seem human I mean it's incredible what he's doing and uh, I, I'm I would be um, upset or jealous if he wasn't such a nice guy I mean he's he's genuinely one of the nicest people in the world so I couldn't be happier for his success and I couldn't be happier for the sport of tennis because he's the greatest of all time and also probably the best ambassador we've ever had and, and how much he gives back to the sport how much he gives back to communities to uh, children in Africa and what he's done um, with his platform is just incredible you're listening to ATP Tennis Radio I am very excited to to talk with a man whose name really is synonymous with tennis, with coaching, with Florida, and of course with the IMG Academy, Nick Bollicieri. Nick, first of all, thank you very much for talking with us on ATP Tennis Radio. Well, first of all, it's always a big thrill for me to be able to, to chat with different organizations, and especially with the ATP that now has so many young players coming up. And then also we're looking forward to Andy Murray coming back and, and see if Djokovic is getting strong enough again. And by the way, we should all give a big clap for Del Porcho coming back from, from injuries. And uh, what can I say about our man Roger Federer? He is uh, something special on the court, off the court. I also would like to congratulate the USTA, uh, Martin Blackman, and also our wonderful girls program. We have the best crop of youngsters coming up that we've had in the past 10 or 12 years. But also, thumbs up to all the young players coming up from throughout the world. And what that does, the best players of the world must play the best all the time because of the youngsters that have nothing to lose. I've just been watching an IMG Academy session here. You've got 24 sessions this week, four yes. a day, all, all for six days. I'm guessing you'll be out there throughout the week, and I'm oh, guessing yes. you're also still happiest on court. I, I am, and I'm also spending a lot of time in the IMG booth, signing autographs and just talking to little boys and girls, and 
Also, what's interesting is to see how parents introduce their children to me. I have the next star. Wow, I know they're going to be a player. Instead of saying, I have a child that has the ability to play the game of tennis, and we will support them, hopefully for them to reach their level of ability. I wanted to ask you about that. The, the kids we've just been watching were sort of 10 to 12 years old, and I think there's going to be 14 and 15 and 16-year-olds as well. With 10-year-olds, what do you want to see in a 10-year-old? A 10-year-old is not to discourage the 10-year-old. is to make them feel that they can do it. Also very important in the beginning of 10, 11, 12, not winning, developing their game, developing the, the, the spirit, how to play the game, how to build points rather than having to win all the time and not doing things that will help you to be a player in the long run. So then what about 14, 15, 16? Do you want to see them fighting more, at, winning more? At 14, 15, 16, most of them are through making changes, except Pete Sampras at 14 when, when his doctor made a change and he went through agony for two years and developed one of the best one-handed backhands in the world. At 14, 15, 16, they should start learning how to play, getting ready to earn a scholarship to college. What most youngsters don't know, and parents, and coaches as well, at the 3,000 people playing on the circuit, less than 1% will make a living. Think of an education, think of getting a scholarship. Now, if you're one of those few youngsters that have the ability and you're given a big contract, then perhaps you should consider it. Back in the 80s and the 90s, I turned my kids pro when they were still in diapers. Not today. And what do you say to a player who perhaps has a, a shot like a jack sock forehand or going back even further, Alberto Beresategui? Do, do you try as a coach um, and a preeminent coach to coach that out of them or do you go with it? No. Today's game, 70% is paid from the forehand side. What you want to do is to get into your weapon as many times as you can so that when you practice and you can get into that big forehand, do it. But also look at the footwork. We haven't talked about the game today that's made up of techniques, mental and physical. Today the game is very physical. And remember, back in the 70s and early's and the 80s and early 90s, my students... 5'10", 5'11". Pete Sampras was a giant at 6'1". Today, the average size on the men's tour, 6'3 to 6'4". Ladies, 5'9 to 5'11". And also, you can't get away with a real weakness in today's game. You just can't protect it that much. You mentioned Pete. I was. I wanted to ask you about, you know, the, the 70s and the 80s and who your most unruly... I was telling the guys about this question before and they were wondering well, who you're going to talk about. You Who's your most unruly student ever? His initials are AA. That's it, I take the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> I was wondering whether they might start AA. But the student that was the most talented of my 60 years of teaching, Marcelo Rios. Had the best hands, feet he created, didn't appreciate the game, the players didn't sign autographs for the children. It was sad. I think he was number one for two or three weeks. 
And that brings me on, actually. I was talking with Nicolas Harry or Jarry, uh, the new Chilean. Well, he's 22, isn't he? Um, he looks a, a great prospect. I, I was in Rio. I saw him play there. He then made a, a final in Sao Paulo. Which of the current crop of, say, 19 to 22-year-olds do you think holds the most promise? Well, well you have several of them right now. The big six-foot-six, I think, German. Donaldson. You have several young Americans coming. The thing is... Can they stay there mentally? That's the key. When you're 19, 20, 21, you'll win a few, but also they're after you. So can you fight through those things and learn how to win tough matches? But I I think a lot goes back to the mental and physical part of the game as well. And by the way, when you have a push second serve, get your first serve in. And my last tip, don't say I said it. Do like we Italians. Anything close is out. Can I just ask you one more sure question about can. this event? Because yes. as someone who knows Florida so well, and you must have been to every single one of these events, what do you make of it moving? And, and uh, what do you think they're going to have to try and do to emulate it at the, at the well, new stadium? Th- there's two wonderful tournaments. Indian Wells, where my student, that was like my son, Tommy Haas, is a director. That's a fabulous tournament. Here, the ambiance and the excitement of so many mixed nationalities to come. I don't doubt that the facilities will be wonderful. It's whether or not we can create that excitement of all the different nationalities coming out to there. And by the way, today, I headed up the big clinic with Roger. Over 400 inner-city children came today for the clinic. And... Uh, they do a great job here, and uh, IMG is, is something special. It started with 14 acres, and we're now 500 acres, and uh, it's fantastic to see a dream come true. Nick, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for talking with us on sure. ATP Tennis Radio. Thank you very much, everybody. This is ATP Tennis Radio. Well, I'm with an ecstatic Michael Moe. Michael, the winds just keep on getting bigger. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, honestly, wasn't expecting that, given the fact that, you know, I was really feeling the legs going into the third. I was exhausted mentally, exhausted physically, but, you know, I just battled my way out of it, and um, it was all hard at the end. And um, only thing that got me through was um, just my competitiveness. So I'm really happy to come away with the, come away with the win and um, couldn't be more happy. Just yesterday, we were talking about the, the Misha Zverev win. But this is a step up. It's the 12th seed. Biggest win of your career? Oh, for sure. Not even close. Um, you know, I've always watched Batista Agut play. I've always admired his game, always been a fan of his game. And uh, he's one of the guys on tour that I really love watching. I love the way he constructs points and just the way he plays tennis in general. And um, I think he's one of the guys on tour that's a little slept on, um, a little underappreciated at times. And, um, you know, I'm really, really happy that I could, you know, beat him today. So a breakdown in the final set. What are you saying to yourself? I mean, just battle, honestly. Like, at that point, I wasn't even uh, looking at winning the match. I was just, I wanted to give it my all. I wanted to give it my 100%, and that's what I did, and then I came away with the win, so pretty thankful. And talk me through the, the final points. I couldn't even tell you. I couldn't even tell you. Like, it was just a blur, honestly. It was all, it was all in the moment. It was all adrenaline, and, uh, yeah, it's just a complete blur. And for you to have your, your dad out there as well, what, what does that mean? 
Huge, huge. You know, given the fact that he was a near top 100 player, a good player himself, just to have him behind my corner, you know, he's a great mentor. He's helped me along my entire life and my career. And uh, to share this moment with him is, uh, I mean, just unmatched. So a little while ago, we, we heard from Michael Moe, uh, who was incredibly happy, obviously, with, with the best win of his career, he, he said, and quite understandably. He referenced in that chat how proud he was also to win in front of his, his dad, Tony, who I'm delighted to be sitting with now in the players' dining area. And Tony, I'm guessing that you're just as proud as him. Oh, I'm extremely proud of him. I mean, he, he played unbelievably well today. I'm just, you know, just shocked the way he played. I mean, it was a fantastic match. And you played yourself. So, I mean, what, was it always the case that Michael was going to be a tennis player? Yeah, I, you know, I, I basically discovered, you know, discovered him when he was just eight months old. I mean, I could, I mean, I rolled a ball and he stopped the ball, and I said, "Whoa, what was that?" I mean, eight eight month old kid can stop, infant can stop a ball, you know. And I did it a second time. He did it again, and I said, "Okay, that was it," you know. And then, you know, we got him involved in tennis, in soccer, in swimming, in all kinds of sports. But I, I knew he would eventually play tennis anyhow. Because Michael told us earlier in the week, he's born in Saudi Arabia, which we knew, but lived there then for what, 11, 12 years. I mean, w- yeah. was it easy to uh, to become a tennis player, a young tennis player in Saudi Arabia? Well, at the time when he was born, I was I mean, I was in Saudi as well. For yeah. sure, there's lots of tennis courts everywhere. And, you know, I worked with him in those early ages. You know, there's lots of junior players around. Also, in the, within the region, there's also junior events around. You know, from there, he came over and won the another orange ball you know from Saudi Arabia I mean so the training there was quite good as well you know so uh, that's how IMG discovered them and gave him scholarship to come over and because you played Davis Cup for Nigeria and you were a tour player as well from that moment on was Michael always going to play in American colors as it were or uh, growing up did you think he might be a Nigerian tennis player well I mean he's I mean I think it was something that I did when he was born. As, as I was also, I'm also I'm an American, so he was born an American, you know. So obviously it's up to him, but I wanted him to play as American first, you know. Then if he decided to go play for Nigeria or play for Ireland or play for Australia, I mean that's a chance he he could make, yeah. And how often do you get to to watch him on tour these days? Well, not not a lot, little bit. From now on, I've been, I've made a commitment to him that I'm gonna be, you know, coming along a lot more now, you know, to find a way that he can basically start to maximize his progress. When did you know that Michael was going to be a professional tennis player? I think I've always known, you know, his capabilities. You know, he's got the power, he's got the reach, he's got the talent. It's just a question of you know, molding all the different elements, put them all together right. You know, I knew once the whole uh, part is put together right, he will definitely make it. So right now, that's where we all, with Glenn and everyone is now working together trying to make sure that that happens. So what's his, what are his strengths? We'll talk about his strengths and weaknesses. What are his strengths first? I think his strength is first, you know, he's physically able. You know, he's got, you know, forehand that is that could be really, really awesome. Uh, the backhand is really getting there as well. You know, right now, you know, he's versatile in all areas, but we still have to work on all of them. So we they still have room for improvement. So we need to get them better. We need to get them more consistent, you know. 
if there's one area that needed more work than any any of the others, what would it be? It probably be uh, maybe volleys a little more, to, you know, where he's able to like volley once and put it away, you know. Uh, I think that's basically that, and also working on the defensive positions that are good, but we we need to convert the defensive into an offensive. Even when he's under pressure, convert that to an offensive play from whatever it is. You know, so those are the areas that we're going to be fine-tuning. And from sitting there and watching him win the Orange Bowl to now sitting out there, what, seven years later, I guess, um, seeing him at this level, Masters 1000, must be incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's something that, you know, you always, you know, dream and pray for your kid to do, you know. You watch, you watch the transition, the transformation, you know, from a little boy to a tall, whatever, not to a pro, you know. It's just amazing, simply amazing. And just finally, how, how high do you think Michael can go? What, what, is the sky the limit? Do you set targets? I, I think, I honestly believe, you know, with proper guidance from now on, you know, fine-tuning all the strokes, fine-tuning all the, the, the negative areas that we need to work on, he's got the potential to really go all the way. You know, and I, he has that belief he has. I believe that he's got the talent as well. If guys like, uh, you know, Batista could be top 20, why can't he be top 20, you know? So if all the top, I mean, he's got whatever it takes to be there. We just have to work for it. We just have to make him believe that he has what it takes to be there. You know, I think it's now all about beliefs. Tony, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. My, my pleasure, man. You're listening to ATP Tennis Radio. I am in the ball person's tent here in Miami with Mark Adler, director of the ball persons at the Miami Open. Um, director, warden, chief constable, how do we describe what you're doing, Mark, on a minute-to-minute, hour-by-hour basis? It, it's like multiple titles. You had it correct. Um, I almost feel like this is like a kingdom and I'm the king and these are my, uh, my, my members, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, you know... I, it is. There's, there's lots of titles you can have at this tournament, but in the end, uh, it's 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 pretty big. I mean, there's 400 kids that I'm in charge of, and I almost feel like they're I'm a parent and they're my children, and um, it's 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 a, a big undertaking, I guess you can say. Well, yeah, and you say big. It's a did you know, isn't it? It's a trivia qu- a quiz question that Miami Open has the biggest ball kids or ball persons program anywhere in the world. We are. We are the largest ball person program in the world. We have over 400 ball persons that participate at this tournament. Uh, we accept uh, roughly about 700 applications, of which we weed it down to the final uh, roughly 400 ball persons that participate at the tournament. Um, it's a huge responsibility. We, we put them through some very thorough and tough training, and we get the best of the best of the best, as we want to call it. And did you set out to do that, to create this huge program? So we end up having, uh, starting in February, we begin uh, roughly six weeks of training. Uh, we spend about six hours almost every Saturday for six weeks almost in a row. And the kids come out and we put them through multiple exercises, which include their running agility, uh, ball presentation. How, we teach them how to enter and exit the court, rolling. So we want to test them all the different skills because when they're on these courts, there's a huge responsibility on their hands. And one of the things that we want to make sure is, can they handle it? Can they handle all of the requirements we have? Can they roll a ball the right way? Can they present to a player? Because... You know, players attend all, you know, go to a lot of different tournaments and they expect the same a lot of places they go. And when they work with these kids, they don't want to feel like they're going on these courts and these kids don't know what's going on. They want to feel like they can 
rely on these kids to really help them during the, these matches. But there are bigger tournaments out there. Um, you have to whisper that, but the Grand Slams, for example. Why do you like to have so many? So our tournament is a, it's a two-week tournament, of course, the Tennis Master Series, and our tournament occurs coincidentally during school time. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have the opportunity of during uh, winter break or summer for a lot of these kids. Um, so we end up having a large amount of kids that come out because we have to, because of our scheduling. Um, at the same point, we end up working with uh, 16 kids per court, whereas a lot of tournaments will only have 12 kids in the court. So we actually have extra kids that are there designated just for like an umbrella. Um, we don't want to have our backdrops doing uh, the umbrella. We have additional kits for the umbrella side. Plus, on top of that, um, we have a lot of courts that are used. So we have anywhere between you know, 8 to 10 courts on a daily basis that are being used. Um, so, of course, take that times 100, you know, 16 kids, you know, 160 kids per shift roughly. So we have a lot of turnaround that goes through between our day and our night crew. And you mentioned how you train them up. What are the entry criteria that, for them to be considered? So they have to show us, you know, they're, they're put into a huge position. And one of the things I always tell these, the, the ball people is you have the ability to make or break a tennis match. So a couple of things that we require, of course, is maturity, responsibility. Are they willing to listen? You know, they drop a tennis ball in the middle of a match that could change the outcome. You know, the two words we always tell the ball people they never want to hear is wait, please. Because when an official says wait, please, it's 99% of the time because something happens with a ball person. Whether they roll between a serve, they drop the ball, you know, there's a ball still on the court that they didn't retrieve. So when we put them through these training exercises, we bring in a lot of those same scenarios to see how they perform. And we evaluate them uh, and rate them. And based on that, we then get together and kind of go through our evaluation sheets and we determine which ball persons we feel can fit the uh, Miami Open program. And these are all 13 and over, I understand. Presumably from all kinds of backgrounds too. Oh yeah, we have, so our, our age starts at 13 and we go up. We know a lot of tournaments, they have a, a, a bottom age and a top age. We let them go into the, uh, all, all the way up as needed. So we have, uh, we've had great stories. We have, uh, I have a ball person that comes over from Scotland. Uh, we've got uh, a group of kids that come down as tennis team from Georgia, uh, from New Mexico, from California. We have ball people that are here from other tennis tournaments uh, that participate as well. So it's, it's a great range of people that we get that want to participate and, and be part of our program. And while they're not paid, the, the perks from looking at the website are pretty good. Yeah, so they do. They, the perks are great. Besides being on the court and having the best seat in the house and interacting with the players that they idolize, uh, they do get uh, clothing. So they receive a Lacoste uniform, which consists of shirts, jackets, shorts, shoes, sunglasses. So they get a, a significant amount of clothing that they uh, receive, plus, of course, uh, the ability to interact with these people that they truly idolize. And 10 tickets each for stadium. Yes, and they get their tickets to come in and watch, uh, watch, and actually watch. On their days off, they do get uh, the ability to come in and, and watch tennis. And we, and we really uh, want that. We want them to come out not just to work the matches, but also to come out and enjoy tennis at the same time. Of all the jobs here at the Miami Open presented by Ito, why, Mark, do you do this one? You know, it, uh, it, it's great. You know, I, I enjoy working with the kids. Um, I've been here for 29 years. I started as a ball person, and that's really what it comes down to. So I know what they're in for. I know what they do. You know, the ball people are probably, in my opinion, the hardest working at a tennis tournament. And they're also the ones that kind of get overlooked a lot of times because of the fact that they're supposed to be on court, so silent. 
you know, it's interesting because I, I tell a lot of people the players will call their own lines, but they won't pick up their own tennis balls. So when it comes down to it, the players rely on these kids so hard and so heavy, and I truly enjoy be, you know, being able to work with them. We have a wonderful program. I probably would not want to work any other area, and believe it or not, a lot of people come over to my area and they realize and see what we do and they say, I don't know how you handle it, I don't know how you could do it, but uh, more power to you because it's a great thing. And just finally, uh, I'm interested, as we go through the tournament and you know we reach the knockouts, the later knockout stages, do the kids who get those matches get them because they performed well or is it done on a random basis? Sure, so it, 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 right, it varies. So yes, as they go through, we evaluate them as they're actually working the tournament. We do have the ability to have them move from lower courts into the upper courts, the grandstand, the stadium matches, but also they'll come down to their experience. We have ball people who have been here for two, three years into the 15, 20 year range. So you're talking about a lot of longevity. They come back and they keep coming back for a lot of the same reasons that uh, I mentioned as to why I'm here, because they truly love it. They like being here. They like interacting with these people. But yes, they everybody has the ability in the end to work get their way into stadium whether this is their first year or their 10th year it all depends on how they perform seems a lot of fun it is a great it is, it is a great experience if you've never been a ball person we invite you to come out try out do it it's fun if you love tennis there's no better way to to, uh, to be with these players than being a ball person and that's it for this week's podcast. Remember, you can tweet us at ATP Tennis Radio or leave us a review on iTunes. There'll be plenty more from myself, Seb Lozier, Gigi Salmon, Mars McLaggen, and the rest of the team at ATP Tennis Radio as we continue to bring you live coverage of every ball from the second week here at Crandon Park and the climax of the Miami Open presented by Ito. It promises to be a lot of fun. Make sure you join us here on ATP Tennis Radio.